Amen. Well, uh, although this year's uh, American NFL Super Bowl got hijacked by Taylor Swift, the Super Bowl is most renowned, in my opinion, for the ads. There's often a debate about uh, execution and style. There's different opinions about whether people like it or not. And uh, when it comes to Christian ads, then the, the discussion is just elevated to another level. Uh, maybe not amongst your circles, but certainly amongst uh, people in ministry, my sort of peers, uh, there's been much uh, debate and discussion around um, what was trying to be achieved there. Could things have been done differently? And rather than just sort of uh, typing out opinions or words, uh, one Christian pastor in North Ireland just came up uh, with his alternative, and uh, I'm going to show you that now. Uh, Christians, no doubt, have different opinions about what is central. Uh, I guess the difference here is Jesus gets us or Jesus saves us. And uh, when people uh, think that there's sort of the, the central things that matter to our faith, then having discussion and debate, it's sort of just quite natural, isn't it? Uh, It's natural that people are passionate about the things that they think are central, the things that they think can't be compromised. And really, this is really what's going on in this letter of Galatians that we're spending the first couple of months of this year looking at. Paul's not just sort of giving his opinion about the advertising campaign of the church down the road. He's not just sort of you know, um, arguing the semantics of that other church's sermon series title, whether they could have used a different word. Paul is addressing churches that he was integral in starting, people who he actually met, people who he shared himself with, he'd shared time with, people who knew him. And and so as we continue reading our way through Galatians, we've got to realise that Paul's not just sort of on the keyboard firing these pot shots to people somewhere across the globe. He's not just sort of at a theological conference where they're sort of debating deep theological issues. He's relating to people that he knows and loves. And so whilst it's important for us to engage with what is really at the heart of Christianity as we see things in public discourse, also we sort of have this shared experience of Paul, of people who we know that we've spent time with, who seem to sort of drift in different directions. For me, I'm thinking about In the last 25 years, there's people who I've sat in Bible studies with, who I've served alongside in Christian groups at university, people who I sort of felt like I poured myself into as they were growing up, people who I studied theological degrees with, people who now no longer believe what I do. And not just sort of, you know, periphery things, oh, they believe this is baptism form, I'm a Presbyterian, No, 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 people who actually have vastly different ideas about what life is about and who God is. And so the obvious question then for us as we see this this distancing, this um, division and these discussions is, well, how do we know that our understanding of what's core to the Christian faith is correct? How might we be aware whether or not we're the one who's drifting away from what's central and actually becomes off the mark. Well, I think the only anchor that is revealed to us in Scripture is the authority of what God has revealed. And so encouraging each other to sit under the Bible as the ultimate authority is what has really held 
followers of Jesus together for the last 2,000 years. This sort of special revelation from God that is contained in the Bible. But it's not something that is just sort of dry and academic that we just sort of sit and write essays about. It's held together God's truth as we apply it to life, as we seek to live by faith in who God is and what he's responded. And so in our passage today, as Paul's sort of been giving this big letter where he's on the defence against those who are attacking him, we see Paul interact in two ways, both on the personal level with people who he knows. He's calling shared experiences. He's calling them to remember things that they've been through. And then he also engages in theological truth, trying to unpack what it is that they're believing that is dragging them away. And so having given this sort of very deep theological argument in the opening chapters, we hear today from verse 8 a little bit of a transition in tone. Paul is a little bit more personal in his plea. We heard in our reading that Paul fears for where the Galatians are at. And he wonders whether his efforts for them has in fact been in vain. He describes being perplexed by their behaviour. He doesn't know why they're resonating with these other voices that are starting to guide them in a particular direction. And so we see in our passage today from verses 8 to 11 that he wants to remind them of their own shared past. And then from 12 to 20... He implores them, based on their own relationship with Paul, to not forget what had happened. And then from verse 21 to 31, he reminds them from Scripture and starts to try and address the very truth that they're being dragged away by. Now, Paul here is not concerned about trivial matters. It's not just sort of things that he has a preference for that they sort of seem to be not au fait with. What he thinks is on the line here is actually the very central core of the Christian faith. And he's contending for them because of the relationship that he has with them. And he wants to also compel them to understand the logic of what it is that they're believing. And so as we sort of read this thing of both a personal and a theological argument, I think it's helpful for us to think that there's, there's two ways in which we relate to those who might be sort of drifting or departing. We do so personally. We recall shared experiences. We relate to our relationship, but we also address the issues that seem to be drawing people away. But not only does this passage provide a little bit of a model, but it also is a stark warning for all of us about the danger of drifting And the particular drifting that Paul seems to be addressing is this sort of returning to what previously enslaved us. Now, for the Galatians, it was being enslaved under compliance to the Jewish law. There seemed like there was pressure for them to be included within the Jewish faith as well as be followers of Jesus. It's follow Jesus plus observe this religious order. But for us, there can be other pressures, other things that fall us to return to previous ways. You see, the familiarity of sin that we've been saved by is something that often presents us as a temptation to return to. 
It's easy to seek security in our own efforts or to trust in our good works or our church involvement. But we can also become enslaved and familiar with past habits and previous scenarios. Uh, which is, this is becoming a little bit of a routine, but uh, the, the latest show that Isabel and I have been watching, oh, actually, no, we finished this one, is The Artful Dodger. And uh, it's, a, um, it's a show that's sort of captured and trying to pick up that sort of early colonial settlement in Australia. And uh, it does sort of really pick up this idea of uh, the, the convicts versus the free settlers and, and sort of what that life was like. Uh, all those years ago in Australia. And um, I, I guess there's a sense here that um, those who came to Australia uh, because they were sentenced, they were sort of had this identity on them, that there was something about them that meant that they needed to be monitored and that they were criminals. Whereas those who came to Australia by choice are free settlers. Uh, you might have met someone in your life who, who wanted to tell you that they were free settlers uh, from their origin. It's something that some people have a great deal of pride in to know that they don't have any convict connection. But the experience in the colony was vastly different for those who were convicts as opposed to those who were free. And so I think this is sort of like a bit of an image of what Paul is picking up here for the Galatians to remember this new reality. You know, you sort of were a convict, you were enslaved, but you've been freed. We heard in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 7, that they're heirs to what God has established. And rather than sort of being people who had earned this freedom, it's a freedom that was granted to them. They were given a pardon. And so what does it look like for them to live as someone who has been freed is really where Paul goes for the rest of the letter. And then the thing that he addresses particularly, I think, in chapter 4 is this pull to return to what's familiar to you. And so uh, the lead figure in this, in the colony, he's a, he's a surgeon, but his past life is as a thief. And so there's this sort of constant backstory of which identity will he hold? Is he the masterful surgeon who saves lives or is it really that he's just a dirty criminal, a pickpocket? And so there's sort of that tension that sort of plays out for all of us to go, what is my identity? And then there'll be a familiarity of the things that we've previously been enslaved to that will often be a pull. And the great danger that Paul is warning against is don't become enslaved to what consumed you in the past, but rather live in the freedom that is secured in Christ. And so from verses 8 to 11, Paul begins with his personal experience. He's reminding them of the change. He sort of says, formerly you didn't know God, but now not only do you know God, but more importantly, Paul says, you're known by God. You see, as he addresses the Galatians, he's saying, formerly you had enslaved yourself to things that aren't even worth submitting to, things that aren't even God's. And so for the initial audience, this could have been the religious rules. It could speak the same for those who enslave themselves to pagan rituals or just fleshly desires. The particular thing that seems to be happening here, Paul mentions, is various days, the Jewish religious calendar, that they're becoming enforceable, mandatory. 
that if you're a follower of Jesus and of Jewish descent, that you would be compliant in obeying these rituals. And so Paul is perplexed. He says that they're actually turning back to the way of living. And he describes the way of living as being weak. They're turning back to, to, to these forces that offer no security or assurance. In fact, they're forces that Paul also describes as being miserable. This way of living can't produce any good. It's really a picture of a life where you go through the motions. You know, you sort of got to be in certain places. And then you sort of have confidence that having turned up, been ticked off, that you've been validated. And so I think, you know, just trying to work out what this would mean today. It could be the difference between someone who feels compelled to go to church on Sunday and, and feels guilty if they don't turn up, as opposed to someone who desires to go to church on a Sunday and desires that it's good, but when they aren't able to attend, they're disappointed at missing the goodness rather than feeling guilt and fear over their non-compliance. It's this difference of embracing the good things in life as opposed to being compelled and enslaved and fearful of the consequences. And so Paul describes things here as, as being weak and miserable. It's not the kind of life and security that is available through Christ. And so therefore Paul is perplexed that they're turning back to this way of living. And so just as they had turned to Christ and trusted in him, Paul now fears greatly that they are returning to their old ways. And now Paul here suggests that he sort of, his effort might have been in vain. And I think he's not just sort of expressing a regret that he'd put in any effort to these people. But I think he's showing the severity of their actions, that actually all these good things that he sowed into them, they could actually bear no fruit if they continue the path that they're on. But rather than just giving up on these people, I think Paul in verse 12 is elevating the urgency. He's pleading with them. He invites them to follow his example, the example of being freed through faith in Jesus. And so here he recounts their initial meeting. Apparently it came about through an experience of his own hardship. Paul describes an illness. Now there's much speculation about what that might have been, but it's largely unknown what the specifics were. But it must have been an illness that Paul had that made a real visible impact on those around him. Because Paul says, remember that time when I came... And rather than treating me with scorn or contempt, which Paul is suggesting would have been a reasonable way to treat him because of his illness, whether it's because he looked so weak, or whether he was so unimpressive, or whether physically he almost looked like he was someone cursed by God, Paul says, you were able to look beyond that and receive the message that I brought you as if it was from God himself. Paul is reminding them of their initial encounter. He says, remember that time you received me so warmly, even though there were, much, there were many reasons for you not to. And, and so it's this reception of Paul's message that through faith in Jesus there is now life. 
was this movement from not knowing God to being known by God. And Paul says in verse 15 that they would have done anything for him. That they would have plucked out their own eyes should he needed one. Such an allegiance they had formed with Paul. But the reality that Paul wants to express is the contrast, verse 16, with the current reality. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Like the, the contrast cannot be starker. Someone who you got such allegiance to that you're willing to just give anything of yours that they need to then declaring them your enemy. And the reason that Paul says this change has occurred is that he has told them the truth. Now, friends who become enemies, leadership teams that become uh, hostile, churches that fracture, families that divide, it normally occurs through misdemeanour or harm, but it can also come over contests about truth. And so what we see here is that it wasn't a personality clash that the Galatians were having with Paul. It was a matter of truth and what they believed. And so Paul's plea continues in verse 17 as he addresses those who are his rivals. See, they're not just rivals sort of of different teams within the same organisation, you know, I've played for about you know, three different clubs in the Canterbury Association. You know, they're just different jerseys. It's all sort of the same thing. That's not what's going on here. This group who's opposing Paul aren't just sitting under the one Christian church. They are establishing something quite different. And Paul's exposing their motives. He says they're wanting to develop followers for themselves rather than followers of Jesus. Now he acknowledges and calls out their strategy. They're zealous. They've zealously pursued the Galatians. So you can probably imagine it. They're those those leaders who are really good listeners. They're really personable. They have you in your home. They share of themselves. It's quite easy to be personable and compelling But Paul says, zeal without truth, it's really dangerous. So if you start gathering a crowd for yourself rather than a group of people whom you're following Jesus together with, then this is dangerous stuff. Christianity can be a platform that others then sort of build their own empire on. And so we've got to realise here, Paul's just not sort of firing pot shots at these rivals. It's not like he's just sending off an email. It's not like Paul's sort of thinking, oh, I've got to stabilise the Galatian church while I go on and do other things. He desperately wants to be there because he sees that the issues that are going on are serious. Verse 19, Paul describes himself as the Galatians' spiritual mother. He says he feels like he's experiencing the pains of childbirth again. Now, for any woman who's, who's had a child, the thought of you know, having to go through labour again for the same child, like you just wince at that. But what we see here is Paul's mindset that he has for these people. He's moving towards them. His desire is that Christ would be formed in them again, that, that Christ would be the very essence of who they are as a people. 
and that they would be changed and renewed as Christ again would take shape in them. And so just as a mother knows their child better than anyone else, so too Paul is committed to not only spiritual birth of the Galatians, but also their spiritual growth. And so while sort of having this little personal plea, sharing from uh, past experience, Paul now moves on from verse 21 to actually address the issue. It's not just all evoking of the heart. It's engaging the head as to what is actually leading them astray. And so from verse 21, he starts to apply scripture to their present situation. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, this is rich in irony, but Paul is dealing with the topic at hand, the role of the law and what place that has. And again, Paul is going back further than Moses. We saw it last week in chapter 3 that Paul unpacks that what is happening in Christ is the realisation of what was promised to Abraham. Centuries before the law came to Moses. And so having made the connection that those who are in Christ are heirs of that promise made all those years ago to Abraham, Paul now reminds the Galatians about how the events back then relate to the experience that they're having now. And so Abraham was made a promise by God. You're going to have numerous descendants, although you're old and your wife is barren. You're going to have a land that's your own. You're going to be blessed and you're going to be a blessing. It was an unlikely promise. And what we see in in Genesis is that rather than trusting God at his word, Abraham waits for a little bit and then says, well, how's this promise going to get realised? My wife's old and barren. My maid is young and fertile. How about I make love to her? And that's how this thing is going to be realised. And so Paul here is referring to Abraham's actions with his maid Hagar and the son Ishmael who came about from that as opposed to Sarah who did conceive and bore a son Isaac in God's time to show God's faithfulness to his promises and so it's these two responses in Abraham's life to the promise that God gave him that Paul alludes to he leaves some of the names out because the focus for Paul is on the social status It's this idea of slave versus wife or free, and it represents two covenants. And the lesson here is from Abraham, who took matters into his own hands, thinking that the promise made to him would be realised through his initiative, that he needed to take action, but then he's reminded that actually God is the one who delivers on the promises he makes. And now these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, things in the household, as you could expect, became problematic. And so eventually Hagar and Ishmael were cast out into the wilderness. And so in verse 25, that reference to Arabia, I think that's sort of the allusions there, that that's where Hagar and Ishmael were cast out to. But the astounding connection that Paul is making here in Galatians is to this slave woman. This slave woman, Hagar, her connection to Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, it's the birthplace of the law. It's where God met Moses. The tablets, the the commandments given. 
And so Jerusalem, which is the very epicenter, the homeland for the people of God, Paul says that actually that is connected with Hagar and all things slavery. He's saying that the present Jerusalem actually just embodies humanity trying to take matters into their own hands. And so whilst Paul's rivals are no doubt... uh, sharing that their reputation comes from being validated from within Jerusalem, Paul sort of is actually saying, well, actually, you know, you know the present-day Jerusalem, it's more like a convict settlement, actually. All it's good for is enslaving and protecting those who are enslaved. The actual Jerusalem that matters, Paul says, is this idea of the heavenly one, the one above. And its connection, Paul says, is to the freedom that is found through the promise made to Abraham and fulfilled through Sarah. You see, God's promise is realised through his power rather than human effort. And that's the very heritage that Paul is wanting to remind the Galatians of. It's the very identity that those who in Christ have, not as someone who is enslaved, but someone who has been freed. Not convicts, but free settlers, and not free settlers who have chosen to come, but people who were convicts, who were given a pardon, and then are made free. And then when you're made free, you're given title to a land. And this is the hope that those who are in Christ have, that they are heirs of an eternal inheritance, this Jerusalem above. And so whereas in this day the pressure was to align yourself with the the teaching and the influence and the heritage of Jerusalem, Paul is saying, no, 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 the the whole paradigm's changed now. What's being realised is above. The risen Jesus where he ascends, that's where security and freedom lies. And so in the proof of the existence of this new Jerusalem, Paul quotes in verse 27 from Isaiah 54. He says, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, now this is a prophecy from Isaiah for Jewish exiles who are in Babylon in the Old Testament. This is like 600 years before Paul is now quoting it. And at that point when they're exiled, they're failures. Them and their descendants have failed to live as God had desired them. They are receiving the consequences of the sin of their forefathers. They are enslaved to the Babylonians. They are weak. They are helpless. They're surrounded by nations and an empire that seems strong and able. And in the midst of that reality, the prophet Isaiah refers also to Sarah and Hagar. And so just as Paul is doing here to remind God's people of God's ways, it's a reminder that God is working in the most unlikely fashion. It's a reminder not to let your current obstacles, for those who were exiled in Babylon, it was the oppression of the Babylonians. For the Galatian Christians, it was the oppression and 
persecution from the Jewish people. Don't let these obstacles, this persecution, this disappointment overwhelm you. Don't think that your own limitations are going to cause you to doubt that God will deliver on his promise. It's a great warning to resist the temptation to try and trust in self, to take matters into your own hands and to switch the object of your faith from God back to self. Because this quote from Isaiah is this just reminder of Sarah's experience, the barren woman who having a child was impossible, but through God's power, life was born. And when that birth came, there was just joy and singing and delight in God and his ability to deliver on his promises. This is the illusion that Paul has given. There is a Jerusalem above. You can't see it yet, but it's been promised to you and it's secured in Christ. And one day when you'll dwell there, and like the convict who becomes a free settler and then is handed a title to a bit of land that is now yours, you belong here. You own this. So too those who are in Christ are heirs of what Jesus has established and then there'll be joy. But in the meantime, beware of the danger of regressing to what you were previously enslaved to. Now, perhaps for some of us here, it's to religiosity, to just sort of going through the motions, to putting on the public face of being a Christian. But perhaps for most of us, enslavement is to the desires of the flesh or to the ways of this world. The great danger is where is our worth found? And the great invitation is is this identity of being freed in Christ. Of one who was a convict, guilty, but was given this pardon that we did not earn or deserve but was granted. And now we have the title, heirs of an eternal inheritance. This new heaven and new earth that Jesus has established. And so Paul finishes in verse 30 and 31. He says, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Friends, we are invited to live as those who have been freed. The familiarity of what has previously enslaved us will be present. as we wrestle with that particular expression of temptation, we need to be reminded of what we've been freed for and the joy that will be experienced when that is fully realised. And friends, as we see others perhaps being pulled in another direction, there is a place for us to draw near to them, to remind them of the shared experience that we've had to remind them of the evidence of what God has done with them. It's also important, perhaps, which is probably more of our weak spot, is to actually engage in the, the things that they're starting to believe, that the arguments that 
uh, giving, uh, having leeway that's, that's drawing them from the security that's found in Christ. Father, uh, friends, we've been freed for the joy of realising that God delivers on his promise. Uh, let's lift our eyes and keep lifting one another's eyes to that great hope. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we want to thank you so much for the freedom that is found in Christ. Father, thank you that you have released us from the various things that have enslaved us. Father, we pray now as you bring to mind to each of us the particular things that we might be struggling with or have previously been enslaved to. Whether it's our attitude of self-righteousness, whether it's the great confidence we have in our competency and abilities, whether it's our, our pattern of refuge into desires of the flesh or our need to please those around us. Father, remind us again that we've been bought at a price and that you've freed us to be heirs of what you have established forever. We thank you that by your spirit you strengthen and equip us to hold firm to you. And Lord, we do pray that your spirit will be strengthening us to believe this identity that is found and been declared through Jesus for us who hold him. We pray that your spirit would bear fruit in our lives. We pray this for your sake. Amen.